Podcasting straight from North Carolina is Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry sharing her author journey with you. Jen Lowry writes is a place where amazing things happen for authors and readers together. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate podcast host. Jen is just the bird singing the song. She is a published author, educator, homeschool mama, life coach, and dreamer. Join her on the daily journey of discovering what this writing life is all about. Let's see what she will be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about today. Here's Jen. Hello? Hi, this is Don. Oh, hey, Don. All right. So welcome to my official author podcast. My name is Dr. Jennifer Lowry. And today, for all of my listeners out there, I have got a special guest interview with Don Alisi. He's the author of Letting People Down, Memories of a Cemetery Worker, and Ghost Written by All Those I Have Buried, 1989 to 2017. You can find it on Amazon. You better go on right now. Pause it, go to Amazon before the interview, you even hear anything, and just get a copy of it today, because I'm telling you, you're going to love it. So, okay, you got to tell us about you, Don. Let everybody know who I've got here on the podcast today. Okay, well, um, like I was saying, I, I worked at a cemetery for approximately 30 years. Uh, I was uh, in a very active Army Reserve unit. I was a paratrooper, and I worked in military intelligence. And then following my um, seven years in the Army, um, I was looking for a job, and a, uh, a job working at a cemetery came up, and I took it. And um, it was nothing what I expected, and um, what I thought would be a temporary job turned into a 30-year career. Um, I've been married to my wife for 33 years, and um, our big passion, we have a vintage 1947 Cessna airplane that we travel all over the country visiting uh, small towns, uh, seeing local historical societies and just we just love meeting people and um within the next year we're going to retire to a small cabin in uh, south dakota and just kind of uh, enjoy our later years in life and live the dream that's our hope <laughs> i know i love some of the sayings that you would say in the book and you would repeat them like you you turned in your college math book and you went into the army then you did you know i could have a rifle do you remember those parts where you would say, like, I had a rifle that I could have a shovel? And so you turned in that and you picked up the shovel? Oh, yeah. Well, basically. Like your transition um, times in the book. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, basically what ended up happening, uh, my mom, mother had a rule with her six kids. As long as you're going to college, you could live at home rent-free. But mm -hmm. as soon as you quit going to college, you had to move out within six months. So I tried college for a year. And after a year, I decided that I could not stay in college. So. My mother gave me the uh, gave me the six month rule. So uh, with no prospects, I decided to join the army. So I uh, decided to. Um, I was in a restaurant. I saw a commercial for "Be All You Can Be," yep. and it sounds like that um, they basically said we work till nine o'clock in the morning. That people do all day, and I thought, well, great. <laughs> I could just have I could work all morning and then have the rest of the afternoons to myself. So I. Uh, Dropped off my um, school books and traded it for a, a rifle and a uh, entrenching tool. And um, boy, was I in for a surprise. Mm -hmm. Good recruitment tool, right? That's such a It was. <laughs> and today when uh, my uh, Army buddies and I, uh, we joke about that commercial because they're all, and this was in about approximately 1984, 85. And we still laugh about that commercial. That, mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how it started. And then um, 
I did seven years in extremely active uh, special forces paratrooper unit and um, two broken ankles. Uh, they determined I could no longer be a paratrooper. So um, I decided it was time to uh, look for another career. And by that time I'd been married for a while and a um, friend of my father's approached me and said, gee, if you can uh, dig trenches uh, and foxholes, well, gosh, you could probably dig graves. So how would you like a, a job doing that? So I uh, dropped my rifle and my, um, shovel and picked up a different kind of a shovel and a uh and a weed eater <laughs> so yeah. uh, and then 30 years later um my wife said i told my wife it was a temporary job and my wife said yeah your temporary job turned into be a, a career and a very good one at that i must say right because you have helped so many people and when you write it's like honestly i know you i feel like okay i'm just sitting with you and we're just talking about life and, oh, I got a funny story to tell you. Or, oh, I've got something that happened. Or, oh, did you know this? And this is how we do things. And so when you read your book, it's almost like it's just so natural the way that you wrote it. Like, when did when was this pivotal moment in your life? Like, can you remember that defining moment where you said, okay, I've got to write a book. I've got to write all of this down. Or was it inspired by someone else? Or did you just come up with the idea one day and say, I'm going for this? Oh, no. Well, um, I got to backtrack a little bit. And I think I put it in the book. Um, in school, I was geared toward basically auto shop but i was and also english <laughs> english you said auto english. shop and english auto shop and english so what and kind of career I had. teacher yeah yes and what was interesting about it was uh my english teacher kept tell we do book reports my english teacher kept saying you don't follow the rules you tend to read you read your book reports completely different but then she said don't ever change your style um and then she says you have a different way of uh of writing so she kept encouraging me. And then what's interesting, my um, army buddy, I'd have to do intelligence reports, which is basically, you know, who, what, where, and when. And um, every once in a while, I'd get a, um, get, get a chewing out from the, uh, the group commander who was a colonel, would say, you know, your reports are sound more like a book than just a, you know, just, just simple facts. I don't, I don't, need, I don't need all the uh, flowery details. He goes, but, and he'd say that with a smile when he'd say it. And he goes, you know, Lisa, your damn reports are, are more like books. And my buddy Leonard would always just tease me about that, saying that, you know, I, I could make a, a simple two-page report, you know, a 20-page a, a uh, journal. And, you know, and that kind of stuff started making me started making me think a little bit. Um, so anyway, though, so what ended up happening was – we, we had hung out with the airport with a bunch of friends all the time. And they'd say, so what's new at work? And I'd say, well, this happened or that happened. And everybody kept saying, yeah, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I finally said, yeah, maybe I should. And then my friend, a uh, very good friend, Lorraine Morris, uh, an airline pilot said, why don't you just write a few pages and let me see what you think. So my, my few pages, as I've referred to earlier, came out to 40 pages. And next thing I know, she's in her camper at a, an air show, just laughing her head off, came out and said, you got to finish this book. Now, did you write it in order or did you do, because your chapters, you know, could be split apart into like shorts. Like, did you write it from beginning to end or did you work around with the placement? Did you plan it out? Did you brainstorm or just free write? Okay. Well, I was actually, the book was almost was written three times. The first time. I just took, I just wrote all the stories that I could think of as fast as I could, not worrying about editing. I just wanted to get all the stories down. Right. 
And then um, Lorraine looked at everything and she says, why don't you start putting them into chapters? So I started dividing them up into certain areas and she liked that. And then another friend said, you know, a lot of people don't know what it's like when somebody loses a loved one. Why don't you incorporate what happens when you get the first call or when somebody says, gee, my mom died. Mm-hmm. So that was a third version of the book. So I tried to incorporate the, the burial process. It's like when I, one of the chapters is there, you know, um, you know, how do you, you know, what happens when you get that first call? And um, so I tried to intersperse. So the book is basically written three times. And the third version was the stories, um, the chapters, you know, combining them and the uh, basics of, you know, how we help families and how they pick out a grave and, you know, what happens. Right. So, so I just had to blend it together and I'm not a professional writer. I just tried to put it together. And then the final version, um, Lorraine looked at it and other than calling me a semicolon king, <laughs> she had my Maureen go through that. She thought it was fine. She said, that's perfect. And just, it just needs some cleaning up. And, well, you are a professional writer now. Your book is in the top 200 on Amazon. It's doing well. Like, has your teacher, Miss Burmeister, has she seen it? Has you sent it to this English teacher? Is she still around to be able to, like, give her a shout-out right now? Um, <laughs> I would love to. Kate Burmeister, um, from last I heard, one of my good uh, friends at a class reunion uh, about two about a year ago after the book came out, she came up to me, gave me a hug, and she goes, and she was in my English class, and um, I'll have to backtrack. About 10 years ago, I ran into Kay Burmeister at a class reunion, and I introduced her to my wife, and the first thing she said was, are you a professional writer yet? Uh-huh. And I said, no. And that's the first thing she said to my wife. And she goes, she goes your husband she could have been a professional writer. And she goes, what are you doing now? I says, well, I'm you know, a cemetery manager. And she's like, and she looks at my wife and she, and by then Kay was like in her seventies. And she says, that kid had such talent. And I just said, I said, Ms. Vermeister goes, I said, I was just a grease monkey in school. And she goes, no, you weren't. You kept downplaying yourself. So anyway, so our, our my friend uh, Jill from a class reunion stayed close with her. And she said she sent her a copy of the book. But Kay's oh. been – and Kay's in her, like, mid-80s now. Um, so I hope she read it. I have not heard from her. And next time I talk to Jill, I'll ask her if uh, if Kay managed to read the book. But I, I, I hope she's happy with it. Um, so – So about marketing this book, like, so here I am at work. I work at a large high school with uh, over 100 teachers. And so we are often in the hallways and we're asking, well, what are you reading now? What are you reading now? And so I drop your line. I'm, you know, reading, letting people down. And it's from a cemetery manager. And they're going, for real? Are you, what are you reading that? How did you find that? Because that's what we always ask each other, like, you know, who recommended the book or how did you, you know, find this book? And so I told him the brief story about having you on the podcast. And I'm like, guys, y'all have to read this book. Like you got to get it. And so I'm telling everybody in the hallways that I'm reading the cemetery book and they're not looking at me like, okay, she's crazy. (laughs) Why is she picking up this book about cemeteries? They're saying, oh, 
that sounds interesting. Like that's the reception that I'm getting when I talk about your book. I'm sure. Are you getting the same kind of, how has it been received? Because that's what's happening to me when I say, oh, I'm reading this book about the goings on in a cemetery. And it's more than that, guys. Trust me, you got to read it. And so they're like, oh, I got to get that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because when I was trying to figure out what to do, now the book is done. Well, I got to backtrack a real quick thing. One of my best friends, Mark uh, Pascalino, um, he's a corporate pilot, has like 30,000 hours. And he was one of the people that was encouraging me. And he was going through the book and he says, well, let's come up with a good title. So we shopped some ideas around. Of course, we're looking it up and we agreed on the title. He helped me agree. And then um, he thought, and then the picture, he says, we got to find a picture. So, uh, He's going through my phone pictures, and there's the picture of me in the, the crypt. And he goes, well, there's the cover of your book. And he says, That's, that'll sell it right there. So uh, so he helped me pick it out. Again, and, and if you see in the book, my friend Mark, he, his first paying job was flying bodies for a living for a funeral director. Mm. And that's how he started out his flying career. And so, and he's just kind of as warped as I am in certain respects. So it just started out kind of slowly. And then all of a sudden, um, I forgot how I connected with um, Ann Jones um, on Facebook. Somehow, I don't remember how we did, but she's been one of my biggest supporters of my book, always spreading the word about it. Um, but it was hard to pigeonhole what category it would be in and what type of person would it appeal to. I think it could appeal to everyone. Like, I think it can appeal to everyone. Like you say in the book, you know, you can't avoid death. That's one thing you're not going to be able to avoid. And you say at the beginning, like, if this book could just be in one small way a help to somebody, then you've done your part. You know, you wrote that as one of your goals for the book, you know, to make readers think. But you also said, if it's helped someone in a small way, then what you've done with this book, then it's all good. You know what I'm saying? I'm paraphrasing you, but I know yeah, you said no, something like yeah. that. You that's right. That. And um, one of the things I found out through my service is I've seen some pretty, um, let's just, for lack of a better word, some pretty ugly things. And um, I think how I've been able to help people when they're going through something very bad. And, you know, I talk about somebody lost their son in an accident. and mm -hmm. um, The candy canes. The candy canes. Yes. And we just remembered oh. that her husband was there. There's... Um, their 20 year old 20 something year old son died in a tragic industrial accident and it was just it wasn't a pretty sight and the woman's wailing and she goes you don't she goes how can you understand what i'm going through and i said well i've seen some stuff in the military that and yes i can definitely understand what you're going through um and i can just i told her i said i can picture so i can just picture what your son must be like because i've seen it and um then she kind of understood that we were on the same wavelength uh, and it's hard to hold it together sometimes, you know, when you're in the office, because, you know, you could easily be on the other side of that table. Right. And I just have to keep telling me what my mom and dad would always say, keep doing your job. You can have your meltdown later. Mm -hmm. I like that. Be, I really like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, but at least the things I've seen in life, I could really relate to a lot of the families, like, you know, losing relatives, um, you know, suicides. Uh, I've unfortunately, I've you know, I've right. had, I've seen it all personally. And so I, I have too. And so when I, and so this week, I actually went to, uh, it's called Youth Thrive. There was a suicide youth focus group, and um, they had a lot of different organizations and nonprofits in Raleigh, and everybody met together to talk about how can we really start bringing this to light 
and talking about it with youth and, you know, trying to push that out. Cause that's a personal issue for me with my family. Mm-hmm. And when you, when I got to that chapter, I have not read and I'm going to be honest and I don't want to get choked up, but like, so for example, when we're reading literature at school, there's a book, things fall apart and it's a 10th grade novel and there is suicide in the book. Well, I refuse to teach that in my class as a novel because I didn't want to have to go there, you know, right. in front of the class and the, and have that. And, you know, my family members have, and they're, they're my, you know, a parent, a, you know, a sibling, and I can't do that in front of classmates, right. And students and all that. So I have shied away from those topics for years. And when I got to the part in your book and you even gave allowance, if you feel like this might be a little uncomfortable, skip the chapter, you know, go to another piece. It's okay. And you wrote that in there. And when you gave me that, it was almost like you gave me the freedom to say, okay, this is a safe place where I can read about this topic And I did not fall apart and I read through it and there was a line in there that was just changing for me because you, there was a part where you said you understood like about your uncle and you said, I understood. And that your aunt said, you know, it it was him. It was who he was, you know, and you, you gave such good memory. You had memories attached to that about the acts and how he, you know, took over that role with you and that just really moved me and I was like you know what you know I can get through this I can do this and so I made it through the other side of that chapter that you talked about and it was a good healing piece for me wow that's nice that's it was I'm I'm telling you the truth and and it's odd that here I am going the same week that I'm having the podcast with you and then I'm going to this suicide meeting and at you know having to speak in front of complete strangers at a big conference table you know all fancy dressed people and I'm having to speak about you cannot ever say that somebody you know that commits suicide looks this way there's no poster child for suicide it can hit any demographic it can hit any you know and I'm you know I'm speaking that voice and then I read that part and I'm like wow I got through that I read that yeah it was difficult because um my uncle uh, parachuted in Normandy on D-Day and the 82nd Airborne. In fact, my kid brother purposely, when he joined the Army two years after I did, he said, I'm going to be like Uncle Bud. I'm going to be in the 82nd Airborne. And, you know, it was kind of memory of Uncle Bud because, you know, when Uncle Bud had cancer and he said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out my way. And right. you know, my, aunt, my Aunt Gladys, she just accepted it. And right. I just always said, I you know, people can say what you will about certain things. And I always just said, if you knew Uncle Bud, I mean, he was just. You hold those memories, right. I just hold those memories. And, mm-hmm. you know, he went out the way he planned on going out. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's just the way but he was. But that was and, his choice and that was the and way my, he was. Right. And my kid brother decided to honor him by being a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. And, you know, of course, I went the other way in special forces, but that's beside the point. Right. You know, my dad was in, I told you my dad was in 82nd. And he was in Vietnam, and he was exposed to Agent Orange. Terrible. And his bones just fell apart. Like, his bones were just breaking all apart. I mean, it was, it was but till the end, he was Army strong. Like, he would, he never once, you know, blamed the Army or bad-mouthed or talked negative about his experiences. He was so honored to serve in the military. And, you know, and he went out that way, you know, with me looking at him as that, you know, honorable man. You know, who was just at that point in his life. 
But you know what? I I do think that we can choose what memories we wish to keep. Exactly. I love that. Everybody, we choose the memories. And there's something else. When so when you said if your book has helped someone in a small way, then it was worth the effort. So I'm telling you, it's helped me. Thank you so much. I really that really means a lot. There was a part in the book that I absolutely loved. Like I actually want to quote you and like frame it to remind myself because there's a part where you said grief is like waiting in a shallow part of the ocean. And you talk about how when you're in there, you know, you can have the waves, it can be peaceful, but then you can have the waves and then it just never leaves you. And then your line was, and it shouldn't because so many people like when my dad passed and then when my mom passed a couple of years later, people would say, well, you'll get over it with time. You'll heal with that. You know, I think about my parents every day. I love them dearly. And I, you know, I honor them by speaking them to my children every day. I'm always bringing them up. You know, we're always celebrating things about them, but the grief never leaves. And when you said, and when you said in it shouldn't, I think you're right. And so when people talk to me about, tell me this is going to get better. Tell me it's going to get easier. And when I say things to them and you can tell me if I'm wrong and you can stop me because I feel like you're blunt enough where you can say, no, (laughs) that might not be good to say, but I'll say, you know, you may cry less, but then there might be a day when something hits you and you may cry more. And then there'll be a day when, you know, everything feels fine and, and good. And then there might come another day when you say, gosh, I really wish they were here so they could see their grandchildren, you know? And so I go through those moments, but the grief is always there. I just have learned to live with the grief as a part of who I am now, you know? Right. And one of the things that I, I, I don't know if I think I, I'm pretty sure I put it in the book, I apologize if I don't remember, but would always drive me crazy when an elderly um, a lady would come in and say, well, my kid's tell me i need to stop grieving yes and i got really upset and i said can you show me the rules that says you can grieve for a week a month i said there there's there's no timeline i said that everybody grieves differently and i said don't ever let anybody tell you how long you should grieve um, right and that's the freedom of your book like when you read those things there might be people out there that have felt those things but they have had judgments placed on them or they have, you know what I'm saying? There's a thing that you said, the tools that you carry with you are your ears and not just your ears in the office, but you, your ability to be able to listen without judgment. Correct. And I felt like that throughout the book. I felt like, you know, you could, you're such a people person. Like God had truly placed you. That was not you falling into that career by accident. I don't know about that. Because it takes a strong, it takes a strong person. I, I really think about, think about hospice workers that are there on that end, you know, comforting families and loved ones and those that are passing. And then think about funeral directors. I can vividly remember how much the funeral director was so instrumental in me having some peace and just the way she spoke with me and how she helped me through that process when I had to go and make those hard decisions, you know, about picking this out about my mom and and having those moments, like the care that it takes, that takes special people to have to do that every day. 
Like that's a, that's a strong character of a person to have to face that every day and do it with grace and dignity and with this non-judgmental. And that's where I think your humor helps you. Yeah, my humor can be a little dark side, and uh, you know, there's a point it's, in the book. I don't, I don't think it is. You said that well, a couple times, and I really did not. It did not come at me at all. Not one time. There was nothing at all that hit me in the wrong way. And I'm a very serious-minded person, you know. And I'm not like the best joke person in the world. And a lot of times there will be things that people will laugh at and I'll go, why is that funny? But I'd laugh at your stuff, but it wasn't in a crude way. It wasn't well, a I thought the one part about the suicide and I kind of was, do I leave it in? Do I put it out? You know, about what my, uh, what my, when I yelled at my guys, cause I was having a little bit of a meltdown after right. I, I found the person. I was like, it was my coping mechanism. Um, my mom, my mom was the type of person that, the worst things got, the worse her jokes would get. No. <laughs> it was just how she, it was her way of coping. Um, right. It was just, you know, uh, and then um, if I could relate a story that's not in the book that's interesting is when we go, before we go on a mission in the Army, we always had the uh, the typical, they'd say, 30 minutes of the chaplain. Oh, yes. You you did talk about the chaplain a couple of times. So Yeah, in fact, I ran into him at an Army reunion recently, and we had a nice little revisit. Um, I, it was nice to see him, but I'm not quite sure if I mentioned it, but basically, I was just trying to understand why he talked about peace and love, and then mm-hmm. 20 feet away, we've got a rifle stacked up. I'm standing there with you know four hand grenades, a couple of uh, law rockets, and if I do my job correctly, somebody's going to have a really bad day. Mm-hmm. You wrote that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I was very conflicted about that, and um, I liked the way. And I finally went into his office one day, and I said, "I don't get it." And he sat me down. He he kind of straightened me out. And I, to this day, when I saw him at the reunion this year, I wanted to thank him because I said, "I think that 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 had a profound effect on the rest of my life." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good guy. So you talked about one of the challenges in your book was that you were scared you were going to offend other people. You know, you wrote that in like near the end that you made you like with your humor. But I want you to know that for me personally, I mean, five stars all the way. Like there was truly this is a book that's just more than, you know, how how deep do you dig the grave? Except that one time when you had to dig it like nine feet. (laughs) But like, you know, the, the and then you've got even though you say this is not a history book, you do sprinkle in there pieces of history that give us like the tombstone piece and um question have us think about things like what legacy are we leaving behind ourselves like you do a lot of insightful and thoughtful things that that you did and i'm sure they were intentional or you might have just fell on them by accident but i'll tell you that the way that you'll go from a serious topic and then it'll go to like a humorous story. And then you'll go to something serious again. And then you'll question the reader. Well, you know, what would the words be on your tombstone? You know, yeah. what, what are you leaving? What are you doing? And it's not preachy either. And you had even said, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as being preachy. It's not, it's questions that need to be asked to every person on this planet. Like, you know, what are we doing? And when you said about your mom, you know, she was a simple woman, but she had like a, she changed the little piece of her world. Right. 
Like yeah. if we all just change the little pieces of our world, look what could happen. Exactly. And when I always if you think about it, um, we can write our whole life story on a computer in a 50 years, that computer is just going to, you know, be so obsolete. But then you look on a tombstone, it's lasted for hundreds, even thousands of years in some cases. And you basically have to sum up your life in just three or four words. Mm -hmm. So how do you want the future to remember you loving mother, you know, um, Christian, um, you know, uh, soldier, um, you know, um, husband, wife, I mean, your whole life. And, and that's going to be there for hundreds of years, but what's on a computer, what's on a piece of paper, maybe a few hundred years at best. Think about it. Right. Or, or on a social media site, you know, a minute and then gone and and lost and lost in the shuffle of everything else. Like I see, like I was thinking of you, like one part when you said you you're not a psychiatrist, but you might as well be. Like I could see you being like the dignitary Doctor Don. Like, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> seriously, like really, I was saying that to myself because when you had that candy cane moment, it was <laughs> like even though, and there was one other part that you had in there that I loved. I told the story to my husband and my husband was like, Jennifer, you cannot tell that story on the podcast because then you'll, you got to save, you got to tell readers to go get the book. You don't want to tell the whole book. And I'm like, I don't care. Um, it's the rooster piece, the piece about the rooster and those little boys. Oh yeah. I don't now, know if you want me to relate that or do you want to relate? Well, I just, I just want to tell you that that choked me up. Like, that really hit me in a soft spot, thinking that whole scene. And the way that you wrote it, I felt like I was kind of there as a bystander, like, seeing that play out, almost like right in front of me. And I could just feel that. And I was like, you know what? You have these moments. And it was like the candy cane moment. And then the rooster in the cemetery. And and then the way that you left it was like after that happened, the dad thanked you. It's like you were like having a pet rooster in a cage, but you did have Gertrude there. Yeah, Gertie. Yeah, but now my granny's name was Gertrude, and mm-hmm. so when I read that, I just laughed thinking about there's a rooster out there that was named Gertrude. And my granny was Gertrude, but but no, when that other the rooster part was the little boys, and they were feeding him um, out of their hand. That part was so endearing to me. And when they got out of the car, like, I don't want to tell the whole thing because I want everybody to read this book. But parts like that in the book, those were, like, spot on. I, I don't know even, like, literary words <laughs> to say. I don't know about that. But it's like it was an emotional pull. Yes, it was. It was really good. And it was this emotional spark that had me thinking, okay, and my brain is a little weird. So I'm going to tell you how weird my brain is. So do you remember that Robin Hood movie? The old cartoon one from Disney. Sure. Do you remember that rooster, the Roger Miller character? And he was like, he was the minstrel and he would go around and he would narrate. You remember that? Barely, but it's been a while. So he was like Alan Adele. He was the, anyway, okay. he's the rooster in there. Okay. So here in my mind, I'm visualizing this cartoon rooster leaving your cemetery, traveling around to all these cemeteries, like comforting children. Like, sure. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, 
that was a part. You used the word divine intervention a few times in the book. And I just see that as if an angel can take the form of a rooster <laughs> and be in your cemetery. Yeah. And, and that's what makes was so interesting is when I've, I think I had one or two people say, did everything really happen? And my wife would always chime in. She goes, trust me, it did because he because Don would come home from work and she'd say, how was your day? And says, you're not going to believe what happened. And she goes, trust me. So I would tell her. So she would hear it literally hours after it would happen. And, you know, my wife's in the insurance business and she has her own stories to tell. So, uh, but like you said, when animals come in the cemetery at opportune times, you're just like, this can't be real. Right. And the, the thing, too, about I was thinking of what would be embarrassing for me, like the doves would be embarrassing for me. Oh, that was terrible. Um, but, the Boy oh, Scouts yeah. and the human remains on the refrigerator, that would have been embarrassing for me. <laughs> even though, oh, yeah. Even though it was so. funny. It was funny. And I, got, but it, I could just see the little kids going, I'm not opening that. You open it. <laughs> like, like. If you had to define like a really embarrassing, like what would could you say was like the most embarrassing? Because oh, I gosh. thought for me, we, it don't have, been we only like, have an hour, right? Oh, no, um, I know. Well, if it cuts okay. off, we'll we'll. No, I'm just it. saying though. I'm just thinking about because, um, I would probably say, I think the part where um, I set up a funeral right before the. Um, the siren went off and I didn't yeah. realize, and, and it was my scheduling of it. And if I would have just scheduled it 20 minutes, one way or another, and the siren was literally 50 feet from the grave site. And when it went off, I mean, you can hear that it's at those emergency test sirens. They do once a month to, to test everything out mm-hmm. and you can hear it for 10 miles. So when it goes off once a month and they put it in the cemetery, figure who's going to care. And, you know, it was just deafening. I thought, and like I said, my words in it was, so this is how last day of my work is so when the family <laughs> when the family complains. But luckily, they had a sense of humor. Right. Or, no, I think there is one more other time. It was when I had to lay on top of the casket. Okay. The I was going to say, you, that was laying, the worst one. you laying on the top of grandma's casket, I don't think that that was an embarrassing moment because you were sprawled out there on face first. But when those people saw you, they laughed about it. They found humor in it. And you might have broken that kind of and it's not I'm not I don't even want to say you know how this downtrodden griefing you know type I'm at the service you had this coming in with that suburban and maybe that's exactly what they needed what that family needed they said grandma would have really got a kick out of that like that was almost like you were honoring that family's way of receiving by having that moment to happen. Yeah, I think I, that was actually divine intervention. And you were like, was. I really think it was. Instead but of I was just very saying, embarrassed though when they when the family was staying and they open up the door and here I'm sprawled up on top of grandma's casket is the only place for me to fit. Yep. And I now, look up and I'm like, how do I explain this one? Now another serious part. Now I never knew it. I never knew that there were jumpers. Oh yeah, that's, that's I have never heard of that in my life. And I'm sitting there reading it and I'm going, Oh my gosh, you know, the despair, you know, the yeah, despair that's, that's of tough. that. It's so tough. And when you recognize those warning signs and you can then be spot on and you can say, Jumper, you know, you then you go into action mode 
and you know you try to you know help and comfort and redirect that's where your dr don again you know when yeah. you're having these jumpers i know you said you only had like 10 in your career but still those 10 you know that's profound for you to have to be in those kind of moments like that of such grief-stricken families that you know they kind of lose control of maybe where they are you know or what you would think you would do like I didn't know that that that's something that was new for me um, when I read the book. Right. And I've, I've been so lucky that I've had such good mentors that the, the burial vault guys, they're, you know, they're the behind behind the scenes guys that if they do their job, you never see them, but they are the ones that told me, okay, let me tell you, you know, when I first started, let me tell you about jumpers. And that's when people are so grief stricken that they want to jump in the grave to be with the loved one they were the ones that would tell me about the signs of it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Well, two years after I started working there, I, you know, I witnessed my first one and the, um, the vault guy who was there just kind of gave me the signs. And, you know, the next thing, you know, I'm, I'm teaching the next generation of mm-hmm. grave diggers or a grave or cemetery person, what to look for the signs and that, you know, you have to, you move closer without being noticed. So, you know, like you're the shadow, like you're the, like shadow, you're the shadow, you're there, but you don't, you don't want to interfere, but you also, you know, cause it's, it's a safe, it's a huge safety issue. Right. And uh, I know the story of Eleanor, like, oh yeah, that's like, yeah. that was sad. And I was like, oh wow. And then that family, you know, that decorated, you know, for Eleanor, like, have you had any other experiences since you wrote the book? Like, has anything else happened that you say, gosh, I've already published this book. If this could be one thing I would add into it that I think could really make a difference for, for people. Have you had something that you would wish you could put in the book? Um, there's probably a few other things. Um, I think one lady was just so grief stricken um, about she basically thought she had more graves than she really had. And that when she lost her husband, her and her daughter had, she thought she'd purchased like five graves oh. and um, her, but in reality, she only purchased one. And when she came in five years later to see her graves that she had only purchased one, she was upset to say the least. And, um, you know, I had no records and I kept thinking, how could we have made a mistake and all that stuff. But then the more I thought about it, I did all the research. Um, I finally told her that to ask her daughter and she did. And her daughter said, no, mom, you only purchased one grave. Right. And the and you, unfortunate part was this was 15 years ago. So any graves nearby, you know, there was no way that she could be, you know, I, the only thing she could do is to be cremated to put on top of her husband's grave. And but you know, you that was give, a tough one. You give advice a lot through the book, though, that people that if they're reading the book, they probably had not thought of before, like when you're planning out plots, you know, thinking about those kind of decisions. Like my dad bought him and my mom a plot many, many years ago. So he would know that he would have those two plots and he knew where he wanted it to be. You know, there are other service members around my dad. Like he purposefully planned that out. And, you know, a lot of times in today's world, you know, do we even talk about these kind of things? And should we be talking about them? And the answer is yes. And I feel like your book brings to light, you know, even things about, you know, 
not the casket term, but, you know, you know, just caskets versus the coffins, but talking about the types and the quality and what can happen, you know, what's the difference between the mausoleums and all this, like you go through, it's almost like you're giving a tutorial while you're giving a testimony. Right. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions I get from people is why are cemeteries so important? And my response always, in reality, it's not about you. It's about the future generations mm-hmm. um, because I get kids in their twenties. They want to see where great, 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 great grandma's buried. Right. You said like the genealogists will come. The genealogist is such yeah. a huge thing, especially now with today's technology and um, people need a place to go to connect with their past. Mm-hmm. And if we have parks for people to hike, and walk and enjoy themselves a cemetery is basically a park but where you can go and remember um i agree with you it's a i took my boys um i had a contact uh, my boys are lumbee indian and i had a contact and he gave me and the boys a cemetery tour And he was an expert on the genealogy of my boy's family. And he would say, you know, and this is where he would tell the stories around it. Like you said, you know, there's so many stories there, you know, they're just waiting to be told. And if you don't write them down, if people don't preserve that, then it gets lost to that next generation and that next generation. So I am seeing, you know, a pull to that now of people wanting to know about their past and so we did an an actual drive through tons of old cemeteries just going from cemetery to cemetery to cemetery not even going to any like monuments or anything it was just cemeteries and now I did something and and I'm not going to ever do it again because do you know that every time I would go to the cemetery even to visit my family and my parents I would never I would tell my kids they couldn't walk across the graves Sure, that's a misconception. And, I, understand. A mis- I know, and I think it's because, like, when I would go, that that's what I would be told. You know, you can't do that because you're you have to show respect and pay. And then I'm like, okay, they're weed eating, they're mowing the lawn, they're caring for it, they're going across the grave. When you said that in there, I was like, oh, duh! Like, yes, why had I ever thought of that before? You know. But on the other hand, though, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book. When I am with a family, though. And, you know, we're trying to figure out which grave we're going to bury grandma and Edmund if they've got five graves and I'm at their family plot. Out of a courtesy, mm-hmm. I don't walk over the lady's husband's grave. Right. While she's standing there. I mean, that's that's so. So there is like a double standard there when I'm with the family. I'm not going to stand over, you know, Mrs. Smith's husband and say, oh, you want to open that grave? I will walk around it. Right. Um, and you know, I think I mentioned, I have to use a probe to kind of find the edges of the vault and I try to avoid that around the family unless they really want to see it. And there's a story, as you know, there's a story in the book about using a a vault, a vault probe. Yes. And And it can be very disconcerting to some people when they hear that thud sound. Yes. I know, um, the phone ringing, that joke about the phone ringing, 
Oh, well, that was the person me. dropped their phone and then you you called. Yeah, I always say if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go to hell, that's gonna be one of those I'm gonna answer because that was pretty. Crazy I was like, oh my god, that would scare the mess out of me. Like it would, I and I and I tell people I'm going to hell, and that's one of the reasons for it. <laughs> that was the scariest. That like for me, I think that that would have been worse than knowing that the grave collapsed because when you gave the story about you felt like your feet were being pulled like i know that that would be a really scary moment it was but i i don't know would it be the phone ringing but you were on the other end of the phone ringing so i don't know i'm I'm the cause of the trouble this time was it was it the mud slide type where the it was caving in or do you think it was being pulled in how it felt like you were being pulled in which one was the scariest for you well, um, initially, of course, I thought I was being pulled in by, you know, by like by, zombies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Of course. But that, you know, that lasts a few seconds. But after my um, coworker pulls me out and makes fun of my weight, um, you know, common sense takes over. Then, you you know, you, you realize what had happened was, you know, grave being down for 100 something years and, you know, the air pockets mm-hmm. and the decomposition of the casket. And it just just takes, you know, the weight of a piece of equipment a hundred years later, because back then, you know, a hundred years ago, nobody used cement barrel vaults. Everything was just wooden caskets and, you know, maybe aluminum and, you know, over a hundred years, um, you know, things just basically start deteriorating and pockets are created, but actual foot traffic of, you know, a hundred or 200 pounds is no big deal. But um, in the older cemeteries, you know, graves were dug by hand. Nobody used a backhoe until around the fifties or sixties. So it just decided for whatever reason, that's where, you know, something higher up was basically telling me something when it just decided to pick that particular time, that particular day, mm-hmm. the grave to cave in and then down I went and, uh, you know, screaming like a little girl. I hate to use yeah, the word. You said, like it. you said it though. You said I screamed like a little girl. You said I, I would too. I can imagine. I have a memory of being in a, a old abandoned home. My dad took us there. And he was telling us ghost stories in there. And I vividly remember like falling through the floor because it was such an old place. Sure. Um, and I felt like somebody was pulling on my leg and I told the story forever. But it was probably my foot, like common sense says that my foot probably got caught onto some wood, you know, that was underneath or some cement block or something. And I just got it lodged in there and I couldn't yank it. But for years, I thought of somebody pulling on my leg. Like as a child, that's what I envisioned it, you know, that experience being. But um, so, yeah, when I read that part of the book, I knew exactly what that screaming like a little girl felt out. Because when I was a little girl, I was screaming, thinking somebody had pulled my foot. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess to me, you can look at life in two ways you could look at the logic side mm-hmm. and say okay it's air pockets is this but i shouldn't say it's not necessarily the fun side but the um other side may think well maybe there is you know spirits there's an afterlife that mm-hmm. well, somebody's trying to tell me something so depending on my mood which is usually pretty much more of a dark humor i i always say that somebody was giving me a sign saying you know you're next or you know um you know, lay off the cupcakes kind of thing. But, um, you know, and at the time, at the time, I was considerably heavier. I've you know, since lost a lot of weight, but um, it was one of those things that. And if you would just see my late working partner Dick, because he was crying, he was laughing so hard, and just the expression on his face was just he couldn't believe it. And then, of course, we saw the um, the deceased, which you know was interesting. Right. Because the grave was fairly shallow. It was only about five feet deep. 
So it must have been in January, look at the date of the grave. Being in January, I'm sure with the ground being cold and frozen, I'm sure whoever was digging the grave just kind of wanted to get things over with. That's what we're estimating because I think the grave went back to about 1870 or so. Right. And like you said, the, the time period, just different way, different methods, you know. All right. You have got me challenged. So I do a lot of challenges to my listeners. And so if okay. I ever see a challenge, I'm going to take it. So you put a challenge out there. And you said that if you could hear a joke that you have never heard before and it makes you laugh, it's funny, then you're going to pay up five bucks. Now, listen, I don't don't need five dollars. This is just I do want to make you laugh. I will not. I'm going to tell you now. Yeah, you can. um, Next time you and your wife go on an adventure, you can give five dollars to a charity of your choice if I make you laugh. Now, I read it. Because my kids said, Mama, it's going to be cringy. Like, don't do it, Mama. I know it's bad. So I wouldn't read it to them because then I was going to get chicken about it. So I read it to my husband, and my husband laughed. And my husband has one of those really embarrassing laughs that if you go to a movie theater, you better be prepared because he's going to laugh extremely loud in movie theater. So my husband did a laugh. So if I don't make you laugh, I don't feel too bad because my husband laughed about it. Okay, and I, I apologize it's a little long, but I have to read this. If you've heard it, you're going to stop me, right? No. You're no, not? You're just going to make no, me, because, you make me do it? No, because the listeners haven't heard it. Oh, that's true. Okay, okay. All right. See, it's like I'm just having a conversation with you. All right. Okay, here we go. A tourist in Vienna is going through a graveyard, and all of a sudden, he hears music. No one's around, so he starts searching for the source. He finally locates the origin and finds it's coming from a grave with a headstone that reads Ludwig van Beethoven, 1770-1827. Well, then he realizes that the music is the Ninth Symphony, and it's being played backward, puzzled. He leaves the graveyard and persuades a friend to return with him. And by the time they arrive back at the graveyard, the music has changed. This time it's the Seventh Symphony. But like the previous piece, it is being played backward. Curious, the men agree to consult a music scholar. When they return with the expert, the Fifth Symphony is playing again backward. The expert notices that the symphonies are being played in the reverse order in which they were composed. The Ninth, then the Seventh, then the Fifth. By the next day, the word has spread and a crowd has gathered around the grave. They are all listening to the third symphony being played backward. Well, just then the graveyard's caretaker ambles up to the group and someone in the group asks him if he has an explanation for this music. I would have thought it was obvious, the caretaker says. He's decomposing. Yes. I've heard it, it, but it's still very funny. I have heard that one. No, but I still love it. But I'm so, I'm so, but I'm so glad you told it because it's, it is a very funny joke, and I really love hearing, and I really hear, think it's hysterical. Um, but, um, but I've never, heard, I've never heard. I've heard usually a shorter version, but I like your version much better. Okay, so and it also talks about like music, and you bring up songs. Oh, yeah. Which... All throughout the book, you could have a playlist. And I actually made a podcast this morning because I write lyrics and I write poetry and songs. And so when I'm writing, I'm writing like songs that they would sing to each other or songs that could go in the background, like a soundtrack. You got a soundtrack for your book. Yeah, well, like the thing about the uh, the song uh, Woodstock. Um, yes, yes. In fact, my friend <laughs> Lorraine, she was teasing me. She goes, you got the lyrics backwards. And um, so she had to straighten out some of the lyrics when she was doing it. And then um, 
gosh, what's there some of the other? I'm trying to remember some you of the other songs. Hotel California. Gotta have Hotel you did, California. Yes. You did, you did Guns and Roses. Um, yeah, you, you did R. You did REM. REO Speedway, I believe. No, you did REM. Oh, the R-E-M, end of the world yes, as R-E-M. you know it. You know that, and I'm feeling that's like right. That yeah. um, and the one that okay, so I'm a horror fan. Like all I want to watch is horror movies. Sure. So, so there was a part at the end of a chapter, and you did like the Halloween theme song. Right. And so here's what happened to me. I'm listening to the Halloween theme song as I'm reading, you know, in my mind, you know, the tinkling of keys, it's going and I'm reading your work and then I get to the next chapter and then you, you drop Jamie Lee Curtis's name in there and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so brilliant. And it was still like kind of playing in the back of my head. So that's what happens to me when I see any kind of music, the music just starts playing as I'm reading. So yeah, and it's kind of funny though because certain you know how we always say that certain songs send you back in time. Yep. Yes, they do. And um, you know, when I you know I've probably heard Amazing Grace played hundreds of different ways over the year. I mean I've had buried over three thousand people. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how many times um when I hear Amazing Grace and when I still hear it today by a good bagpipers, because good bagpipers and then there are ones that will make your ears bleed when you hear it. But um, when that's played, it's still haunting. And that'll bring me back to certain burials. Right. And the one with the service dog. That's what I was going to Oh, I love that part. I read yeah, that part. I, with, yeah, I, I had tears in my eyes when I, I, mean, when I was there. I just remember. And I I'm not read that part to my husband and my boys. And my boys were like, Mom, there's videos where it shows things like that. Like people have recorded animals singing along. And being really sad, like you said, like the horse stayed by uh, the yeah. tombstone, and like it just breaks my heart. Yeah, that was. It's really, I think, to me, when somebody calls up and says, "Gee, is it okay if I bring my my dog or something like that?" I really believe that animals, especially pets, belong mm-hmm. at services because, to me, they're just as part of the family as. Any human, as far as I'm concerned, maybe I'm just a little weird about that. No, you're not. My English bulldog, Rambo, he was like my child. When I lost him, it was like devastating. Yes. It's just as devastating, if not more. It's it's like when in the book when the um, little boy wanted to to bury his hamster. Yes, I know. And, you know, I – you know, how do you say no to – how do you say no to a kid like that? I say because we have rules about that, but sometimes I don't follow the rules probably more than I shouldn't. And how do you know? How do you say no to that? The, the the poor kid, but it also teaches a young kid about life and death, and mm-hmm. how he he's learning at a young age that it's okay to to go through the process, and you know, and that's that people that are at a at that work at the cemetery are not these scary looking hunchback people with top coat and tails that work the midnight shift that right. you know. You're kind, just, caring individuals who really have a heart for people. I'd like to think so. At least the the the, the people I've worked with over the years, because um, if you don't, you don't you don't last very long. Right. You know, um, right. It's like one I of said, those. There's that strength and fortitude, you know, of having that strong character to be able to be a comfort for people in times of such distress and transition and change and shock. You know. Yeah, I don't know if it's natural, but it, it's not something when I when I was teaching new employees, I said, it's something I can't teach you. And I also tell them, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. That's right. And, and I've, I've said that one of the things I learned early on is, no, you don't, you know, how people politely say, well, have a nice day. 
No, they're not having a nice day. Right. That's so I've hard. Let that, to I've, I've let that slip out. And I yep. just say, and one of my employees said that, and I said, it's okay. We've, we've all done it. I said, you're just a nice person, and, and trust me, they didn't think nothing of it. Just, right. It's just one of those things, and you're like, you, and it, as it's coming out of your mouth, you're just cringing like, what did I just say? Like when I think about the like the jobs that I've had in the past and how it has led me to like the position that I'm in now and then the you know, like the what's next for me and how each one of those moments, like when you're in the department store, you know, and you were at the dock manager, then you moved into the military, all of those experiences that you had shaped you in order for caring for people and just being able to be empathetic with people and relating to people and that work ethic, like it was all tied in. Like, do, do you look at it like that, that each was like a piece of a puzzle? Well, I would say, I mean, I think the military shaped me in ways that no matter how upset, how bad you're feeling, you still have a job to do. Mm-hmm. And you cannot complete the job if you're having a meltdown. You just can't. You just can't in in, a, in the service. I'm, I'm sure your family would understand that too. You just can't stop in the middle of a firefight to say, "Oh, excuse me, I need to go." I'm not feeling up to it. I'm I'm upset, and you can feel upset, but you got to move forward. And I don't remember if I apologize. I don't remember everything in the book, but like when my mom passed away, I helped carry her down into the hearse, mm-hmm. and I knew I had a to help a family with a baby burial. Mm-hmm. And I just told my guys, like, look, I'm going to be 15 minutes late. I got to, I got to, you know, I just put my mom in the, the hearse, even though, you know, we choose. And, the they, wanted, and they wanted they, you to stay home. And you were saying, said, well, no, I've got this commitment to, right. And you said your mom, mom would have wanted mom, that. And your mom, mom would have understood. Mm-hmm. Yes. My mom would have been totally upset. And, um, and it was tough. I'm not going to deny it was, it was a tough thing, but I think I, it would have been tougher if I hadn't. Let's put it that way. I know you said you would always be grateful to the army because of the people that you met. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's, it's nice. I still keep in touch with them. Uh, there was a poem for the fallen by Lawrence Binion. Do you want to read that excerpt or do you want me to read it? I have Would it. You read it? You've got yeah. such a, you got such a nicer voice than oh, me, please. Well, whatever. I've got that country slang. Everybody picks at me. Uh, I I love it. Oh, they pick at me so bad. It's unreal. Um, but, when I read the poem, I was like, first, I've got to teach this to my students. So now the high school students are going to be getting this poem and I'm going to tell them your story. But um, it's just so powerful. And this is the excerpt you wanted me to read. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Yes, and I'm not sure if you know the history of the poem, but basically Lawrence Binion wrote the poem during World War One. Um, it was published in like 1914. I, I right. read up on that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, I just and the whole poem. It's it's quite a long poem, but that to me is the most important verse as far as I'm concerned. And it's like, how do you also want to be remembered? And exactly. and and when you leave your book i don't want people to say well you know this is just about a cemetery worker or this is just about a day in the life it is so much more than that when you read letting people down you're going to go through a lot of emotions 
and you may have experiences in the past that you can relate to in the book or if you haven't had a lot of experiences with death, I think it can bring you some comfort and just hearing about it and just seeing it in this way. And you did it in such a respectable way. And I just, I want to thank you for this work that you did. Oh, you. Like, I really it. it means a lot to me. Like, I truly mean that. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like, I really thank you for, you know, writing your story and I know that that took a lot of courage and you know a lot of work and you're busy and you and your wife are traveling and I'm jealous y'all are going to all these historical places and so you've got all this going on like how do you find the balance of of having to do the writing the book promoting like what have you done that you maybe could talk to the writers about to kind of give them some encouragement about having a balance and still write I'll be honest with you um one thing I think I've learned over the years um, is no matter how busy you are, you need to have, as I call it, me time. And uh, I'm a morning person, so every morning I give myself an hour of alone time, and um, I generally go on the treadmill and I read ebooks while I'm on the treadmill. And then um, afterwards, I try to sit at my computer and I'll write, and it's just myself and it's early in the morning um when i was working at the cemetery i could just look out my window and you could hear the wind chimes and it gets just gets you in the mood but no matter how busy you are you need to have time to yourself right all right so don what i'm gonna do is i'm going to cut it here because um this okay. has like an hour what i'm gonna do can i call you back so we could just finish up like what's next for you and how can people contact you <laughs> All right. So we were talking about how do you balance it all? So you said your morning routine, your exercising, your, your reading ebooks, and then you go to your writing. So do you do writing every day or were you just doing that strictly for this book? You know what? Um, generally I have to be in the mood. That's one way I could never make it as a professional writer. Um, because for me to do my best writing, I've got to be in the mood. It's like with this big move that we're, that we're doing. I haven't been able to do much writing for the last several months, um, but now that things are at a lull, um, I've got time to write, and now I'm writing a book about you know living at the house, and I'm also about 100 pages into a book about uh, flying our little Cessna around the country for 20 uh -huh. years because everybody's been, everybody's been bugging me to write that story because a lot of my friends are definitely in that book about you know taking three or four airplanes and going to Florida and the crazy things you can just imagine the stories that happen there. Right. Um, hey, that would be an awesome book. I'm telling you. And, the, yeah. and how about the military history? How about um, that? Cause I know you're very passionate about that. And you would love to tell your dad's story. Like, have you thought of that? The problem with, unfortunately with the work I did in the army, um, I'm sure your husband or anybody could understand it's most of it's classified. Right. And the only thing I can tell stories about, our things are some of the parties we went to and some of the stuff, but all this other stuff, it's like my best friend Leonard spent 30 years in the army and all the stuff that would be of interest. We can't talk about. I mean, he's been nice. to places and has gotten awards. In fact, my wife and I are going through some papers and she found an award that I'd gotten and she didn't even know I gotten it. And I, I wasn't even supposed to have that paperwork because it was classified. <laughs> And I told her, I said, oh, my gosh, how did this get into my papers? And she goes, I didn't know you were there. And she goes, you got a commendation? And she goes, you told me you were in Alaska. And I said, um, uh, that's where you're supposed to think I'm at. <laughs> and I said, okay, you can read this. But then I had to shred it. 
And I right. thought, but I'm just saying this. So no, I probably will not write that book. I think besides that, there's so many good books about the military out there. Um, my dad being in Normandy, there's so many good books. Mm-hmm. Uh, one book even talks about my dad's unit going ashore in Utah. And I don't think I could do it justice. Um, you know, I've, but, uh, but writing about your airplanes and, and those adventures, that would be, yeah, really I think book. that, and, um, I've been kayaking for like 25 years and we've had some, a lot of fun experiences too. So I've, I've got basically three books in me. Um, and again, book writing is just, it's a hobby. It's something I enjoy doing. And, um, you know, it's nice that I've been able to, um, it's, it's the, the financial reward has been a blessing to say the least. Um, and I, I do thank the higher ups for, for saying, Hey, you must do something decent. So <laughs> here's some, here's some gas money for your airplane. Right. Right. Exactly. So next steps for you as you're living off the top of this mountain, which I say is very courageous and living out your retirement. I wish you all the best. You and your wife have wonderful, many more adventures. And I want you to continue writing because you do have such a way of communicating and, and just talking through and expressing yourself that it's golden. So I'm telling you now, continue, continue writing. And I'm getting the next book. So you got to let us know. I'm following, you on, I'm following you on Amazon. I click the follow button, which means if you do put out anything new, it's going to pop in there. and It's going to show me with an email. Okay. Um, and also, if you look under my um, other site, Don Alisi Books and More, I have some of my other writings on there, just some short okay. stuff. I did write a quick um, story about Maureen's father who flew um, some missions on B-29s on the atomic bomb, and then we took him to the big air show at Oshkosh, and he got to see a, a B-29. And the real quick, I can tell you a real quick story about that. We we took him to Oshkosh to see the B-29, and he he worked on the atomic bomb, and he flew missions on it. And he was in his 80s, and he just he walked up to it, and they had all these guards around the bomber, and he just walked under the ropes like he owned it. Or I could stop, and the security guy says, hey, let him go. And all you saw him, he stuck his head underneath the Bombay doors and there was nobody in the airplane, but he was talking, whispering to somebody and there was nobody in the bomber. Mm. And we just stood there watching, talking. And when he came out, he was in tears. And um, the crew men who were you know, at this bomber looked at him and goes, you look like you know this airplane. And he goes, yeah, I spent some time in this airplane in the war. He goes, would you like a private tour? And he goes, no. He just, I just wanted to visit some old friends that were there. Aww. And uh, he's wiping away his tears. And then he just kind of smiled. He's, Plus, this airplane's gotten smaller over the years. He pointed to his uh, rather large stomach. <laughs> so it kind of broke up the atmosphere. But yeah. there was a dry eye in the house, especially from these security people. They were just like, they shook his hand, thanked him for his service. And, right. And, so you- and he was proud of his daughter being a pilot. He always bragged everybody. Awesome. So you've told us Facebook. So now I've just went on Facebook, Donalisi Books and More, and I found you there. Do you have any other way? Like, are you on any other social media sites where the listeners can follow you or, or check in on your adventures? Um, just generally Facebook, Donalisi Books and More. Um, you know, if they, um, if I post something on Facebook, usually it's just, I know it sounds crazy, mostly airplane stuff, but I, I don't do, a, I do a lot of responding on Facebook. Um, but if somebody wants to contact me, you can um, have a question about the book or anything else. Um, you can contact me at um, 
N2084V at Comcast.net. And, you know, just Don, Alicia, and if you have any questions about the book, and I, I've gotten questions from people as far as ways, Tasmania, um, Europe, all, all over the world. I've gotten people that have saw my email address at the end of the book, and they've had questions or just will say how a particular story, like you said, touched touched them. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really appreciate, and I really appreciate you um, making your comments too. That that does mean I'm I'm very very happy when people tell me how a book one way or another touched them, and that makes that makes writing the book so worthwhile. Right, and so guys, that means that once you first you're going to go out and buy this book. And then you're going to leave a five-star rating because that's what it deserves <laughs> because it is amazing. And then if you have questions or if you want to contact Don, you know, he's open for you guys to email him because he would love to hear, you know, your thoughts. So it's out there. And, and I just want to just thank you again for taking time out of such a busy week and such the move and everything's going on just to be able to connect with my listeners and just for me to just show my gratitude to you. And just, I'm so appreciative, though, of what you did in your book, because it really did help me. And and if I said, you know, if I would have grabbed your book, you know, five years ago, you know, seven years ago, would I have been in a place where I would have been able to receive it? You know, I don't know. I think maybe, you know, it was meant for me to get it in this week and in this timing. And I'm just so blessed that I did. Well, well, thank you so much, and um, I want to thank you for the uh, for the wonderful interview, and also my uh, um, friend Ann Jones, who um, has been one of my biggest promoters and supporters, and you know, um, a mentor. She's really one of my big encouraging, and um, also Anita Rogers. She's a she's also giving me good advice, and so there's just and one thing about authors, everybody it just seems like everybody's on the same team. Everybody mm-hmm. encourages everybody there's there's no everybody helps each other and i just i just can't believe it and as it's nice should. and the nicest things i find out is when somebody addresses me as a writer and i always say i'm not a writer i'm just a grave digger no nah, you're a writer with a shovel thank you <laughs> that's, that's very nice of you you're a writer with a shovel so um, we're going to close out with your favorite bible verse um, thank you ironically enough uh psalm 23 4 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So, guys, you know, I'm going to give it to you. We're going to challenge you to go out and write something inspiring today and share it with the world. So thanks for joining us on Jen Lowry Writes, and thanks to Don for being here. And you guys just have a blessed day. So thanks, Don. Thank you so much for everything. All right. Bye. Bye.